Hello, everyone. Welcome to Genealogy Adventures. I'm Brian Sheffy. And I'm Donya Williams. How are you guys doing today? We hope you're enjoying your, enjoying your Sunday. We, uh, we're coming to you live from a very snowy Maryland. Yes, yes, we are. It's snowing. And I just wanted to um, just really kind of say hello to all those that are there today. Again, my is acting up, but we have Joyce Haney from Arkansas. We're covering Snowy Virginia, Janice Gilliard from New Jersey, and Michelle in Omaha. So we are stretched out today. Thank you so much for joining us. And we're really excited for this show. I know we're excited for all of them, but again, just really excited about this show. So pleased to be able to welcome Edward Ball to the show. For those of you who aren't familiar with Edward, hi, Edward. Hey, how are you, Brian? I'm fine. How are you today? I'm pretty well, thank you. So Mr. Ball is a former lecturer and journalist. He actually he's an award-winning author. Um, I believe six or, or seven books. We're, we're going to be focusing on one of those today, Slaves in the Family. Um, he, in his books, he's an explorer of American kind of race and, and history, um, does a superb job of, of, of covering that. And one of the things that um, that's really impressed me about this book that we're going to talk about in this hour-long segment is he stepped up. He stepped up to research his family's enslaving past in South Carolina. He also, he also stepped up to reach out to the, some of the descendants of those people that his family enslaved, which I'm sure all of us as genealogists and historians can appreciate that that's not the easiest, easiest thing to do, um, much less talking about that with your family. So with all of that, Mr. Ball, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's good to be with you. Okay. Yes. So I'm, welcome to the show. I'm sorry. I'm I'm sorry. Go ahead, Brian. <laughs> so one of the things that I wanted to, to talk to, one of the first questions or areas I wanted to broach is something that we were just talking about before we went live on live online. And that was, I got a real feeling reading your book that your experience as a journalist and as a lecturer kind of informed the way that you wrote. Um, the way that you write is very authentic. You know, the, it's very authentic. You don't hold anything back. Um, but we get a sense that there's a bit of an emotional distance, which as the former lecturer myself, that's kind of ingrained in us. We kind of have that ability to talk about or write about very difficult things. And one of the bonuses for me was the fact that there wasn't that emotionality that you didn't put yourself or your family like front and center in the book. If anything, you really kind of stepped back and you just told the story. You just relayed the history. And I was just wondering how, how difficult was that for you to kind of have to maintain that emotional distance? Well, it wasn't easy. You know, the book we're talking about uh, is called Slaves in the Family. I uh, wrote it, it published in 1998. And um, I researched it from, let's say, 1994 until 1997. So we're talking 25 years ago. And at the time, <clears throat> I was a, a critic living in New York City, writing for newspapers and magazines. And I moved to Charleston, South Carolina, which is the home place of my father's family. My father's family named Ball. 
have been in Charleston for 300 years. For the first 175 of those years, my father's family were slaveholders and operated rice plantations north of the city of Charleston. During that time, the Ball family uh, operated 25, a total of 25 different rice plantations. And over that span of time, five generations, the family enslaved close to 4,000 people, a large community, uh, an extensive, uh, extensive interlink interlinked family community. And uh, the, the, the plantations after the Civil War um, became, many of them became share crop farms and um, employed at 50 cents a day about one half of the people who had once been enslaved on those same plantations. And they finally went out of business about 1920. I came along, I came along in uh, 1995 with some questions. Um, my family in South Carolina remains firmly planted. There are about 150 of us there. And I came from out of state, from New York to South Carolina, wanting to educate myself about this inheritance of slaveholding and wanting um, deeply to reckon with it, if you like, wanting to reach out to families whom we once enslaved. And these were my goals. And I um, went through a, several years of studying the paper record that survived from these plantations, which was extensive. And of gradually, one family at a time, one African-American family at a time, finding people in the present, reaching out to them and asking permission to visit. Um, in the end, I wrote about 10 different African-American families from enslavement down to the present, telling their family narratives with their consent and participation. Um, there were a number of families that I met that I did not write about. And the book was published in 1998. And um, <clears throat> during this process, which is a very uh, emotional process, I um, had to, I began to write and I was generating stories um, and came upon the uh, technique, Brian, that you um, point at, which is the sort of journalist's um, eye, which was, uh, I used the first person, I used the, the word I, my, I put myself in the story and I talk about visiting families and I talk about the way we interact with one and I talk about the research, but I don't dwell on the personal uh, responses that I am feeling. The reality is that in the process of meeting dozens and dozens of African-American families, 
there were numerous dozens of cathartic and tearful and shocking and angry and and shameful um, interactions, meaning shame on my part and grace on the part of many of the families that I visited. Uh, some of this, I thought, finally to answer your question, that if I crowded the story with my own uh, emotional outpouring, it would be a distraction and it would also not give justice and centrality to the families that I hoped to to uh, give the uh, the honor of the center stage. So so you might sense in the in the storytelling um, a kind of filtering of of my my personal emotions. Yeah, I think that's what you're pointing at. Yeah. One of my things about the whole thing, it, it, as a as a researcher and going into doing this type of doing this stuff and finding your enslaved families, I, I was talking to Brian about it, and I actually said, you know, um, I was angry with you as I was reading it. I actually got kind of angry with you because I was like, why is he so nonchalant about this whole thing? I could read it. And you're in in it. But then I started to realize, wait a minute, Danya, because I'm the kind of person that will talk to myself. I'm not crazy, but I will talk to myself. <laughs> and I will literally, in so many ways, have an answer. Like, well, Danya, he's not doing anything different than you didn't do. Because just when I found out about my enslaved birds for my family, I was, you know... Um, I removed the emotion. I was like, there can't be an emotion because this is what happened during that time. You have to be able to understand that this is what happened during that time. And you know that you're going to find this and you know that these are going to happen. But I think when I was talking to Brian, I realized I was like, but I think I got mad at you yeah, yeah. because I felt like, well, this is a white guy. So he doesn't have a right to feel that way. And then I thought about it again. And I'm like, well, don't you, that's not fair. You know, so it was like a whole conversation just going on in my head about this, this whole thing. And um, I, I, but I get it. I get it now. And I understand. So I'm not angry at you, but. <laughs> can be. And no, no. I, it's I, no reason. I understand how you would, would, would be angry at me because people like me um and let's say there are i'm guessing that there are 10 million descendants of slaveholders in this country perhaps 15 million quite a lot and many of us know who we are because if if your family once had a commanding position and and wealth and domination over people and and place families are not going to let you forget that and the story is retold and so it would make sense that you're angry at a person like me or in me personally because i'm bringing to the surface um this relationship from which i i'm going to acknowledge this right away from which i take benefit i take personal benefit from this inheritance although there's no there was no money, no capital that 
was left that handed itself down to my generation, there was an enormous amount of cultural capital and and advantage advantage in many other ways. And those things are unfair and conspicuous. So it's understandable to me that you would be angry. And one, but I'll just make one gentle pushback. The idea that this story, this kind of story, is one that should be told by African-Americans alone, um, I don't agree with because- I don't either. Yeah, one of my, um, you, one of my idealist um, views is that one way to help to apply medicine to the, to the grave abuse and legacy of, of uh, exploitation. One way to apply medicine to that is for the story to be entwined and for black folks and white folks to tell this, their t story as a shared narrative. Mm -hmm. Because is in fact, this is how we have lived for centuries together. Uh, and so that, that's what I tried to do. I, I wove together the stories of 10 African-American families with the story of my own white family in, in, in the way that I, uh, I thought was, that I, in a way that I thought showed the in, interdependence of, of all of the people in the, in the, in the past. That's true. But again, I'm thinking um, Donnie and I have surprised other guests that we've had on the show because we've spoken about our enslaved ancestors and their and both their enslavers who were also their biological family in a very calm manner. Yeah. So yeah. yeah. And it's and it's, that's uh, you know what the um, the calm is purchased at the price of a lot of turbulent feeling. Uh, in fact, when I say catharsis, I mean, it's, it has, a, I think, a therapeutic value to feel the anger and feel the shame and express the conflict, uh, which, uh, as we all know, is supposed to be held in check you know, supposed to be contained, and if if we feel it and allow ourselves to express it to one another, that has a, a medicinal effect uh, over the long term, and that's the, the it's purchasing a certain calm. Now you talked about <clears throat> um, ancestors who are biological uh, relatives of yours. Now, when I started researching slaves in the family. <clears throat> I knew, expected, that I might encounter families who are biological cousins because of sexual exploitation perpetrated by my paternal ancestors on the Ball family plantations. And indeed I did. Um, I encountered perhaps five, six, families uh, who uh, I believed and who 
stated as much and who shared evidence that we were biological cousins. <clears throat> and I wanted to tell their stories, of course, and try to unpack the relationship that our families had to one another. And I chose, there were two families that I wrote about in this group of 10 with whom we have a biological, uh, with whom my white family has biological relations. And it, it was uh, those two because the greatest amount of evidence, circumstantial paper evidence, photographic evidence and other was, uh, was available to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that we were um, biologically related. And that's painful. It is painful. It is painful. Uh, and we can talk about that more if you like. I'm happy to do it. Actually, I have that down as a question. Um, I'm just, I'm really intrigued and interested to, to find out what that journey was like for both. For, well, unfortunately, they're, they're not on the show to speak for themselves, but for you and your family in, in, in South Carolina and, and for them and their family. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> well, uh, talking about the two families I just mentioned, for one of them, it was easy. For the other one, it was less easy. Um, a family called Harleston in Georgia, it was easy. For a family called Goodson in Philadelphia, it was less easy. And um, <clears throat> so I went to visit a woman named Edwina Harleston Whitlock in Atlanta, Georgia. And we had, she had actually reached out to me because she, she'd heard I was living in Charleston, South Carolina. She had, she in Atlanta at age 80 had heard through, um, through a grapevine that I was digging into this family history and she knew that that we had a distant but genuine biological relationship she reached out to me she invited me to Atlanta uh, and so I went and she had uh, several children there so I knock on her door <clears throat> and she answers and she's a very uh, dignified uh, older woman and she says, well, there you are. We know all y'all's business. <laughs> and I said, oh my God. And so she, and she, and it turned out that she did know a lot of our business and uh, she and her family and I went on a journey through the past, reconstructing um, our family connection generation by generation. And, uh, and it was a, accompanied by a good deal of laughter and, and bonding. And I'm close to these folks today, you know, 25 years later. I'm close to these folks. Edwin Arles is no longer alive, but I'm close to her children. And her children is children. Um, for the family in... Uh, Philadelphia. Um, uh, I think it was it, it was harder for them. Um, they uh, their experience. They uh, 
compared with the Harlestons, who were upwardly mobile, if you like, um, university-educated professional um, uh, members of the uh, African-American uh, strong middle class, the, fam the Goodson family uh, had been sharecroppers as young people in the 40s and 50s and, and lived in, um, in poverty in the countryside right next to the plantation where their predecessors had been enslaved, the Ball Plantation. And those who uh, lived in Philadelphia had come with the Great Migration in the 50s and 60s and had solid union jobs in healthcare and in um, transportation and I, I and lived in a, a lower middle class neighborhood of North Philadelphia. And I think that the the uh, the, the, the strong bite of Jim Crow, Southern Jim Crow segregation and exclusion and under, and, uh, and I think um, was, 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 had a more um, strong impact on their family than, and so it was difficult and more difficult for them. But, after weeks, after months of visiting and and uh, sometimes traveling to South Carolina with this family to visit the old uh, ball plantations, none of which are in the, my family's hands anymore, uh, I, we, we began to craft uh, a, a friendship and trust that had not been there before. So it sure, it sure ain't easy, Brian. It sure not, it sure ain't easy. But- uh, so Were you ever invited to any of the, the family cookouts? Cause that's, that's, that's oh, a- yeah. Oh yeah. Did I, you go? I, yeah, of course I went. Yeah. Good job, right. <laughs> then that, that's, that's a staple in, in black families. Those, those family cookouts mean everything. And if you're in those, those cookouts, then then you're down with in. it. You're down yeah. with it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you've been brought in. Yeah. You've been brought in. Yeah. Um, yeah. I know Brian has some more questions for you, but I wanted to let you know that as I'm looking at the um, the comments going up, you have at least three cousins that are up here, or at All least right. three people that say that they are related to the Ball Fantastic. family. Yeah, Tony sure. Grant says you're like um, a uh, six cousin twice removed via Elias Redcap Ball marrying Elizabeth Harlston. Wow! So he he's kind of he knows it. That's great. So, yeah. Now um, I was going to make the comment that actually establishing that trust and that line of communication when it works can be a really cathartic, beautiful thing. And yeah. I remember when I was meeting my biological cousins, um, were connected through through. Um, slavery, yeah. you know, after we kind of built up that rapport and that trust and we, you know, we, both sides of the families class each other as family. Yeah. You know, we're connected on Facebook and 
you know, we just have a great time with each other. And cool. that, that took a little time to build. And they, you know, they always, we always both ask the same questions. If Americans could just sit down and just have a rational adult conversation about, about slavery and kind of why certain aspects of our society look and feel the way that they do today, that could go a long way towards really just kind of finally tackling that chapter in our past. Yeah, I think it's true. And it, however, it's painstaking. It's painstaking. Um, it can be done. Uh, it takes a, a, it takes per, ter, personal effort and time, and uh, and I applaud anybody white and black who want to walk that road because it does um, lead to a better place. Do you? Um... Because I also, because like I said, it took me a minute to get to the book and everything. So I've read part of it and I have um, seen it. And I know that Brian wants to get on Captain Nancy. But I wanted to ask you very, so I, went, I wanted to ask you very quickly. One of the things that I saw online with one of your videos was um, when you were in Portland and you were talking to them about slaves and the family and you had the man that get up talking about um he misunderstood when you said uh restitution and he thought it was re reperc repercussions or reparations. reparations i'm sorry i said repercussions reparations I wonder what went through your mind when he said that, like, did he just actually hear something that he wanted to hear? And then also you came back with the fact that you guys were actually trying to, that there was a um, fund that was being done through this book where you were trying to figure out the best way as a group, both black and white to, you know, somehow build something from that. Did that happen yet? Yeah, it happened 20 years ago. Okay. Um, I, I created a small foundation called the Committee, the Committee of Descendants, which consisted of three African-Americans who were descendants of the, some of the families enslaved by the Ball family and three members of my white family coming together um this book earned money and um we set up we had we didn't have loads of money <clears throat> but i think we had a resource of about a hundred thousand dollars which was thrown up by the book and some money came also from my white cousins who were in this organization and we met from night from 2000 to 2003 or, or so and gave small grants to african-american individuals churches um educational groups in coastal south carolina where these plantations uh operated um people like um, a freshman in college who needed money for tuition or a church who that wanted to buy a, a van 
or a, a, a nonprofit, um, an African, a, a tutoring company that needed computer equipment. Wow. Okay. And so th things of that kind, which which were uh, reparations of a sort. Um, perhaps they were reparative. Um, we hoped that they were reparative uh, gestures. Uh, we, and they were a kind of restitution. But <clears throat> none of us had the skills of a of a philanthropist uh, to raise real money and keep it going. Uh, and keep it going. Yeah. So it, it sort of went out of business after four years and the money was gone. One of the main things that we one of the things we did was we um, paid for, you know, Charleston, as most probably many of, of the viewers of your show know, was a principal port of entry for enslaved West Africans and some 40% of African Americans today have predecessors who first entered North America through Charleston. Mm -hmm. And many of them uh, entered at a place just outside the city called Sullivan's Island, mm -hmm. which is a sandbar. It's one of the sea islands of the sand at the mouth of Charleston Harbor. <clears throat> Anyway, there was no, at the time, there was no acknowledgement of this tremendously important history of that place. Uh, and so um, we reached out to the National Park Service and we paid for them to inst install a little museum exhibit that told the story of the arrival of thousands and tens of thousands and eventually hundreds of thousands of enslaved people at this site. And so that was another thing we did. And that's and, crazy that your organization paid for that. Yeah, isn't that interesting? In the National Park Service, we paid, our organization paid for that. But it's, it's, um, it's a critically important piece of the story of African-American life and white, white history too. Now, yeah. Donnie and I often refer to that place as the Black Ellis Island. It is, it is, or rather, since it, pre it predated Ellis Island by about a century and a half, Ellis Island is the white Sullivan's, Sullivan's Island. Island. I know that's right. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That is definitely true. That's definitely true. But yeah, I mean, it's sad that you have to say it the way that you do because people don't take yeah. Ellis that you know they think of Ellis Island first before yeah. before Sullivan's Island. But you're absolutely right. South Sullivan's Island was before it, and technically Ellis Island is is the is the white version of Sullivan's Island. But right. it is I I'm from what I've read of your book so far I I do like it a lot 
Um, it's given a lot of insight in, in researching. It, it definitely takes me down a path that I've gone through when it comes to me and my research for my, as far as who my enslaver was and actually how I connect to him because I am a descendant of my enslaver. Um, so it, it was very familiar. I think that's a, a really good word. But yeah. Captain Nancy, Brian, let's get on her. Can I just jump in with another really, really quick question? And then we definitely will be coming to Nancy. <clears throat> so I was just going to ask as, as a writer, as a historian, um, someone who put his heart and soul in, into telling this history. First of all, I love your sense of humor. We have a very similar kind of dry, witty kind of sense of humor. Yes. And you have spoken about this book numerous times. And you were real, and one of um you were talking about the book. This is a very old video that's on YouTube. You were talking about some really left field, bizarre comments that you got. And I have three. And I just want to get a sense of people are very good at seeing the trees, but not the overall forest. And they were picking out some really bizarre things to comment about. So you were telling about a story about um, a woman quibbled with you because she thought you confused the history of the viola and the cello. Yes, that was hilarious. This is a book about enslaved people and your family's history with slavery, and then they're coming out with quibbling about the, his the history between violas and cellos. And the one that killed me, and this isn't just an American thing, because you had this really random comment from a, an English person who was like, oh yeah, I read your book, it was great. I've seen Elias's, Elias's Ball's potty chair. I mean, when you hear things like that, what goes through your head? Well, I, um, I think in psychiatry, <clears throat> this kind of reaction is called substitution. It's when the thing that you don't want to look at is in front of you, you substitute something else to displace your gaze from it. And uh, that that happens, or has happened numerous times. Um, and uh, I, I understand it. It's, it's, it's a way of uh, returning to the, how can we say, the disavowal. The disavowal. Disavowal is when you know something is is important and yet you refuse to look at it and acknowledge it acknowledge yeah. it yeah which is a commonplace reaction to the inheritance of enslavement in this country right and and I, that's those cases are the funnier ones of of the manifestations of disavowal that i've encountered um, many 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 different other ones too yeah. So the bit that Donya and I are also interested in finding out more about is we very rarely hear authentic accounts about women who were enslavers. So, I mean, little bits are coming out about Martha Washington, the wife of George, and how she treated her enslaved people. But you didn't really hold back about your ancestor, Miss Nancy. Um, right, right, Nancy. Um, she was married to a guy named... John Ball Jr. in the early 1800s, and John Ball Jr. was one of the plantation um, 
masters who controlled three or four <clears throat> plantations and enslaved perhaps 300 to 400 people. Her husband, Captain Nancy is her nickname. Uh, and I'm sorry to say that I don't remember her actual name because it's been supplanted in my memory by her nickname in the family. <laughs> Um, in the family, in my my white family, this is how she is known. Uh, she, her husband, John Ball Jr., dies in 1834, and she inherits his property. And typically what would happen in a case like that, the slaveholders, the principal slaveholder's wife would... Um, allow her brother, her male cousin, or some other male figure to manage and run the, the business, um, and she would step aside and benefit from it. Well, Captain Nancy was not that kind of a person, and so she became a very sort of strict, almost uh, like a sergeant on, she was a captain on the uh, on the plantation and the family story i mean some of this stuff is actually oral tradition that comes down in my father's family for 150 years her she was known to sit in her bed which was on the first floor of a place called coming tea plantation <clears throat> and look out the window after at sunrise having been awakened and make sure that all of the workers who were supposed to be going to the fields, the rice fields, would pass the window and acknowledge her. She, mm. she was a, a micromanaging, uh, she was uh, uh, he almost in did. your face, <laughs> was in your face. And, um, <clears throat> Yeah. <laughs> she was also, uh, I believe that she, um, I believe that she, um, Brian, remind me, is she the woman uh, in the story who makes use of the workhouse in Charleston? Yes. yes she was, and there's a story about bath towels. That's the right, that's right, yeah, okay. Right. This is your cousin Tony said her name was Anne. Her first name was Anne. There you go. All right. Thank you, Tony. <laughs> Anne Simmons Ball, I think. Yep. That's yeah. what he said. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, she had a um, a, uh, a house. Uh, a woman enslaved in the house who did the laundry. And her name I can't remember either, Tony, if you have it open to the right page. <clears throat> and the uh, there were hundreds of letters that survived from um, my family's decades in this business, and they're all in public hands. And by studying these letters, uh, I managed to retrieve um, anecdotes from the daily life of 
the, the plantation. And in one of these letters, which when her husband was still alive, she wrote her husband to describe an incident in the bedroom uh, with her laundress. Uh -huh. And let's let's say her laundress was named Sally. I don't know if it was Sally or Sarah. And Sally had brought the towels to show Mrs. Ball, Nancy, that she had done them. And Captain Nancy said, they're not clean enough. Go back, wash them again. <clears throat> Two hours later, she brings the towels again. And Captain Nancy says, there's something wrong with that one. Um, go back and do them again. And at this point, Sally is exasperated and she said, she said, I don't know what she says, but she pushes back and she, you know, throws her, rolls her eyes or throws the towels on the floor. And Captain Nancy goes into a mad fit. And she, this is the part that will make your blood chill. She tells her husband in her letter, I reached for the little whip that I keep on my dresser. And I, I whipped uh, Sarah several times with it. And then I had Grant, I had Graham take her to the workhouse for further correction. Now the workhouse um, <clears throat> in Charleston was a city owned punishment center <clears throat> for people who defied or, um, or talked back to, or ran away or, or in some, in any way, um, displeased their uh, enslaver on the plantations outside of town, you know, 20 miles away, the physical humiliation and torment was, um, was laid on to um, African-American workers personally, publicly, in front of the whole community. In the city, uh, this was regarded by the elite white class as unseemly. And so there was actually this place called the workhouse where enslaved people would be sent by their enslavers to be whipped. And, uh, and the enslaver would pay a fee to the city for this punishment. There were actually two sorts of punishment meted out at the workhouse. One was whipping, and the other one was something called the wheel, the treadmill, <clears throat> which was a, a giant, it was you know, 15 feet wide, like a giant uh, water wheel on the back of a steamboat. And, you know, six or eight people would be walking on this mill as it turned slowly, making a, a, a large millstone turn. And of course, you had to keep up with this turning and uh, and this torment on this mill would go on for hours. Uh, wait a minute, wait a minute. So you mean that, I've, this I've never heard before. You mean to tell me that they had to just walk on this wheel just over and, and over, they were keeping it rolling? 
Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've never heard that. Yeah. Yeah, you can imagine like a Stairmaster, uh, as, you know, that you just have to keep climbing the stairs. And every 30 minutes, um, the person being tormented would be given a two-minute break to sit off against the wall and recoup, then back on the treadmill. And this would go on for hours and hours. So did the spinning of the wheel, was that being um, powered? Because this is actually like a question on um, the thing. Was that powered by the people that were walking on it? Or was someone actually turning the wheel? No, this was a, it was a, it's not as though they really needed a big millstone to grind corn to be sold by grocers. But that's what this was. It was a, a giant milling, grain milling operation that wow. was done. In other circumstances, it would have been done by water, by water. Yeah, that's what it right. sounds like. Right. Wow. It was used as a torture device. And this was yeah. run by the city of Charleston, which collected money. So Captain Nancy sent Sarah to the workhouse. And I didn't find any evidence of what happened after that, but it um, it was a it was a sign. All, all, all it was necessary to have was this one piece of evidence that this was a commonplace. This was a commonplace part of the goings on in in those mansions in this very proper, very beautiful old city this was a commonplace thing so that was camp that was captain nancy and she was um she was known to patrol the fields herself on her horse uh and and she was not uh, a woman who withdrew to the drawing room she was a her personality seems to have been that of like an overseer yeah, that's that what it sounds of... like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Well, Donnie and I actually have an um, enslaving family member from Edgefield, South Dude. Carolina, opposite of where you are, um, who sounded very similar. Um, that would be, I can't get all of her married. She married quite a few times. I can never remember all of them, but yeah, Charlotte, Richard, Charlotte Richardson. Yeah, gracious me. Charlotte Richardson H Henderson Williams <laughs> Peterson. Yeah, did she did these husbands die, or did she just somehow get rid of them? No, they died. They died. They died supposedly. <laughs> supposedly, right? <laughs> supposedly. <laughs> what was interesting for her is when she every time she remarried, it was understood that was her plantation. Yeah, those were her enslaved people. And that her new husbands could just sit back and mind their own business. That right. That was her. Okay, she sounds like a Captain Nancy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it's deep. I mean, these stories are deep. And, and um, but they can be excavated. I mean, I guess at some point we'll talk about record keeping, but some some extraordinary stories can be excavated with 
with a certain amount of luck and persistence. Well, before we get to audience questions, which I'm sure Donia has queued up, my my kind of last last one is as researchers, you know, we start we start off with names on sheets of paper, names and documents, and they are just names. But at some point, these people start to become three-dimensional, 360-degree people. And yeah. at what point in your research did that, that kind of happen? Gosh. Yeah. And I, I guess about a year into it, I suppose, the, um, the, uh, the, the records kept by... The Ball family were extensive. They survive in four different archives in the South. And encountering the names of enslaved people by the hundreds and stories about them by the dozens uh, allowed and I think that's just, this is one of the most important things that genealogy can do uh, for you is uh, is to reach out and make human and flesh and blood those families who exist principally in the imagination or in the uh, in a half in the light in the half light of of the past, you know, uh, by encountering them on the page, um, the, whatever trace evidence that they might, you might be able to find, um, it it gives you a kind of blood link, blood link to to the past. So, for example, let's see if I can share a screen here. <clears throat> You want to share a screen? Yeah, if you don't mind. Okay. Fiba, can you let him share this screen, please? Oh, stand by. Um, <clears throat> as it happens, the the Ball family were um extensive record keepers and their by historical accident their body of records survived the civil war and were you can given it. to uh libraries and throughout the south you should be able to do it now yeah <clears throat> so this would be uh, an example of of a list of enslaved people on a plantation called Limerick, north of the city of Charleston. And every year, uh, the enslaver would write down the life events of the important life events of um, people enslaved on the plantation. This would be the name of a child, this would be the name of her mother, this would be the plantation where she lived, this is the date of her birth, and she dies as an infant. 
this is the date of her death. Um, wow. Yeah. This is an inventory from a plantation called Pimlico, also north of the city of Charleston. You, I'm, I am sure that both of you all have seen things like this, where you find that people are confined to uh, uh, and their economic value. This, this, this is a column of workers on the plantation and a column that shows their possible resale value. Um, <clears throat> let's see if I can find. So are you, while you're still looking for all of that, there's a place, there's a new um, museum that's getting ready to open in Charleston, African American Museum. And are you going to be sharing some of these records called the um, International African American Museum? I think that's what it's called, I-A-A-M. Um, will you be sharing some of these records with them? Well, um, they haven't asked me. First of all, these are not my records, but they're all, all the property of four different libraries that possessed a mass of papers called the Ball Family Papers. And I'm friends with uh, Tony Carrier, who is the archivist of that museum. Right. And uh, I suspect that uh, we're going to have this conversation <laughs> in the near, near to medium future, uh, because she um, uh, is interested in this set of records herself. I suspect that what might happen is that copies of this enormous horde of papers will be made and and find their way to the library of the International African American Museum. <clears throat> now I'm, gonna, I'm showing you right now, if I can, can I just make one more one remark about this. This is one of the keys that I, uh, I believe helps people to get through the brick wall of 1865. So, Danya, do you um, have any personal experience looking at this kind of thing, the sharecropping contracts? Um, Both Brian and I do. Yeah, okay. So, you know what, the, you know what I'm about to tell you. And <laughs> after, after emancipation, um, African-Americans uh, chose a surname for themselves mm -hmm. and the sharecropping contracts, which are in the, in the possession of the Freedmen's Bureau Freedmen's records Bureau. in the National Archives, are the place where the first use of surnames by individual families can be found. So what I did was, in order to make the connection between living African-American families and their enslaved ancestors, was passed through these contracts. Um, and uh, using the, the names, the first names of these families, to return to the records of enslavement, like the ones I just showed you a moment ago, mm -hmm. um, 
I could make sure I could confirm that such and such a person lived on these records from the period of enslavement, lived on a certain plantation, and so on. So, so there. But, um, in, in this list, it always strikes me because I'm doing working with a team of people on something very similar involving Sapelo and Butler Islands in, in Georgia. Yeah. Is in terms of building out family trees for these enslaved people, especially those really early in the colonial period. Yeah. You, most of the time, you get the name of the mother. You rarely get the name of the father, and you just get the feeling that for most of these people, they knew who the father was, but they don't put it down. Right. Yeah. Right. I think that that's that is true, um, and some enslavers were uh, more careless about how they documented what for them was what for them was their business. <clears throat> In the case of the the Ball family, many of the plantations have records that are. Uh, identify households on the plantation and each household will have a mother and a father and children. Each cabin is identified in certain parts of the records of the account books. Uh, but when it comes to birth records, uh, often the um, the mother is the is the only parent name. Yeah. yeah. Well, oh, um, the ahead. time has come so, and this has just gone so fast. And I just want to thank you so much for being on the show. Um, you've definitely given us so much information. I did have one question from one of our people, which was A.E. Barlow asked, what was your thoughts on reparation? If you can just kind of give a, a quick summary of that, um, right. that would be awesome. Right. <clears throat> well, as I, as I described, I, um, I'm, I tried 20 years ago to make a personal gesture of repair um, that uh, that involved a small number of people and a small amount of money, but an act of reparation. Uh, and I was unable to sustain it, but it had a, a symbolic value and I, and I'm pleased with that symbolic value. Now, today it's interesting and encouraging to see that reparations um, for enslavement have reached the national conversation in in a serious way uh, and I think that that's a good thing um, I don't know uh, whether it will be possible to compel the federal government to make an act of apology and an act of atonement uh, that would include um, financial reparations for the descendants of slaves. I think politically that will be a very tall mountain to climb, but 
we're talking about it. And that's great. I, I think that institutions, um, small and large, may be able, it may be possible to bring institutions to the point of um, providing uh, financial restitution for the descendants of enslaved. And the place where this is beginning to show promise is among universities. Uh, you, you are probably a, probably know that a number of universities have been studying their own um, history as enslavers. And a number of universities are, uh, let's take the example of Georgetown University and Right, in the 272. In the 272, yeah. Are, are beginning to say to themselves, this, our status as an institution depends upon, in some degree, what um, enslaved people did for us, for us, and we've got to give back. And I, I think that it's it's that's the most promising uh, path I think for the the story of reparation. Okay. Well, thank you again. You know, just for being on the show, and um, we would love to have you back. Probably talk about life of a Klansman or just any of your books because, you know, um, you've gotten a very warm welcome from the thing. Everyone is thanking you for your 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 conversation, your openness, um, just sharing every, just sharing all of what you've done. And um, I, I'm very appreciative because like I told you earlier, you know, I was like, I was upset at first and now I get it. Ah. And and I had to talk myself through, you know, and then listening to you and, and seeing your, not and not just also seeing your, your videos, it made it just something that I started to see in you the fight of keeping your own um, emotions to yourself because there was a fight in that, and I could see that. I can see it now, so yeah. I, I appreciate you. Yeah, Donia, thank you for your words. Thank you for the invitation, Brian. Thank you for having me onto your show. And uh, if anybody wants to know more about me and what I've been up to. Go to my website, it's edwardball.com, and there's stuff there that will tell you more than you might even want to know. <laughs> and uh, I hope to see you all again. You will. And, and be well. We would love to have you back on the show. <laughs> all right. Be well. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday. All of you at home, enjoy your Sunday. We'll be posting about next week's show tomorrow. Until then, have a blessed Sunday. I'm Brian Sheffy. And I'm Donya Williams. Goodbye, guys. Bye. We'll see you soon.